This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome, everyone, and welcome back to the Asia Torah Essentials course in Practical Spirituality. Today, we're going to do an in depth discussion on what is called the law of economy. And for those who didn't go to economic school, like myself, um, I'm going to save you several years of university. Just kidding. The, but the main law you need to know in the law of economy is you only trade a lesser good for a greater good. You trade a lesser good for a greater good. And it's a law, meaning it's always predictable that you will always trade a lesser good for a greater good. We can count on you trading a lesser good for a greater good. So, for example, you're in this classroom right now, or you're watching this online, and you're saying to yourself, hmm, should I come to this class or should I not go to this class? And you made a little accounting and you said, hmm, what's the greater good with my time? I've got to do something between three and four today. So what's the greater good? And you very predictably chose to be in this class. Why was it predictable? Because for you, based on your lifestyle and based on your way of thinking and everything that's ever added up to this very moment, right before you walked in the classroom, you said, I'm going to the class. Now, there are other things you could have done. But they lost in this one. Because the law of economy is always there. And what you'll do the next hour, the law of economy will come back into place again. You'll have Rabbi Neckemeyer coming in here trying to make everyone stay. And just, I still haven't figured that out. But do we have any rabbi who does that in Asia? What's that? Yet to see it. Anyway, but he feels that by asking you to stay here, it will somehow affect the law of economy in your, inside of you. Which may be, here's where we're going to start going deeper, is it may be playing on something psychologically. Um, and, it, and it always is. It always is. The law of economy is a very psychological issue. Meaning, meaning there could be someone who would stay because, well, I don't want to make someone feel bad. So that's adding points to staying. Oh, but I gotta go somewhere. Well, that's adding points to leaving. But he looks like he's gonna feel real bad. So that's adding points to staying. Or I'm starting to get embarrassed, and this is embarrassing me, and I'll be less embarrassed because embarrassment's really important to me, and I don't want to be embarrassed. So it's better for me to stay rather than to be embarrassed. And so that's points to stay. You understand? Like that's how we're playing with everything. Now let's go to products. When you're buying a product, let's say you'd like to buy a Coke, which I highly suggest not doing. Um, no offense. I just saw on the news that Coke is having is producing their first alcoholic beverage. What? I have no idea what it's going to be, but they're doing it. It'll probably be some like drink with vodka. It'll be a vodka. Rum and Coke. <laughs> Rum and Coke. I don't know what it's going to be, but they're doing it. So what happens when you buy a Coke is you take your five shekel and you hand it over. Now tell me, is the Coke worth more than the five shekels to you as you're handing it, you're letting go of the five shekels, is it worth more than the five shekels to you? Is the Coke even with the five shekels to you? Or is the Coke less than the five shekels to you? It's more. Less. It's definitely not even. If it's even, you'd just be sitting there going, hmm, 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 should I stay or should I go? The whole time. Right? Should I stay or should I Coke? And, and then... But the second you let go of that coin, you've made a serious statement. What's the statement? That it's worth? The coin's worth? Less than the Coke. Now, the crazy thing is how psychological the law of economy is. It's purely psychological because the guy behind the counter is really happy you believe this. 
And he's also going to be making a statement. You know what, he's gonna, what statement he's going to make? He's going to go to a, into the fridge, pull out a Coke, and hand it to you right over the counter. What statement did he make about the Coke? It's worth more, equal, or less? Less. Less. A lot less? It's worth so much less that he's, he's supporting his family off of it. Good luck supporting your family off the Coke you bought. You're not going to be supporting your family off of Coke, but he'll be supporting the family off the price that you paid for it and everything else in there that had created perceived value. Because it's all psychological, it's all perception of value. This is one of the reasons why it's not okay to market your own products. Because you're, you're too involved, you need fresh eyes, you need a marketing company to look at your products. And they come with their fresh eyes and they know, they're thinking, they're not so involved in your product. You know, they're not trying to proofread their own writing like you, like you know, it doesn't go well when you try to proofread your own writing. They look at it with fresh eyes and they say, hmm, okay, well, we got to create perceived value here. Now, obviously, someone who's a con artist is going to create perceived value about something that's not worth anything. And I don't think anyone in this room would ever produce something that's not worth anything. I think all of us would produce something of value, but you gotta you gotta be darn good today at creating perceived value. I Meaning you have to create that perception for people, otherwise they're not coming. And there's many ways of doing that. But if you want to live a happy life, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, I'm almost old enough to say my dear children. If you want to live a happy life, if you want to live a happy life, the truth is my my kids are older than most of you. My oldest is, I'm a grandfather, right? So, if you want to live a happy life, you um, get out of perceived value and get into the real value. How you doing, Rachel? You can sit right there. You know, because of you, I thought your whole group was from England. <laughs> are you from England? No. You're not? Oh, you're not Rachel? I am. But you're not from England? Belgium? Oh, wow. You, somehow, I guess you were horse that day or something, because now your voice is totally different. Also. <laughs> Have a tremendous memory. Right, Melanie? Yeah, good memory. Okay. Now, listen. If you want to live a happy life, get rid of perceived values in your own life and just go for what actually has value. You have been fooling yourself over and over and over and over and over again and choosing lesser value. Now, meaning you keep breaking the law of economy. There's a law of economy and you keep breaking it. How many of us have had ourselves convinced, for example, that it's, it would be easiest right now to get off the phone with our parents? How many of us have gotten off the phone quickly with our parents? Like, they just can't call at the right time. They have the worst timing of like, How do our parents have perfectly terrible timing every time they call? So, obviously, we have made the people, in this scenario, we have made the people... You like to sit over here? Nice spot. I don't want to either slide over. So, we have made... Oh, there she is. We have made the people who birthed us, fed us, sleepless nights, Loathed us, you know, watched after us, would, would refinance their homes for us if something went wrong with us. 
Like, who in the world is going to refinance their home for you? Only them. And how, how did they get so low on the totem pole it perceived good? To the point where we'll, we'll trade basically anything. I mean, we'll, tra- I mean, we'll trade them for basically anything. That's what I'm saying. Is like we're, we're, even though we always keep the law of economy, we somehow have created this amazing illusion of what's the greater good. We've lost touch with what's greater good. And this goes very much into your question of why I'm in good shape. Physically. Is because hopefully also mentally and emotionally. But why I'm in good shape is, is, is because I'm not really interested in what they're trying to make me, per- what they are making me perceive as valuable. And so I want to be really clear with the law of economy to make sure that the greatest good stays the greatest good. And the lesser good stays the less good. Just to catch you up, we're talking about the law of economy. You always trade a greater, you always trade a lesser good to get a greater good. If you want to live a happy life, you have to get clear with objective good. What's objective good? <laughs> Not perceived good. That's subjective good. You need to be involved in objective good and figure out what the objective good is, and then you're all you're all set. But you're always checking yourself, making sure you're not fooling yourself. Like, for example, even in this classroom, I bet all of you will be doing something next year for your year. I don't know what you're doing next year, but I don't know if you plan a year at a time. I don't know if some of you, like, have a plan in two years, I'm doing this for the year. I don't know what you're doing next year. But there's probably a lot of you who shouldn't even be doing that for that year. Meaning your year plan stinks. It's a lame year plan. And you fooled yourself into the plan. Uh, there's people I know who are involved in relationships that are, that are dead-end, um, perhaps even spiritually kryptonotic. You know what it means to be in a relationship that's spiritually kryptonotic? Heard of kryptonite? It's Jews are like, Jews are like Superman, and kryptonite is anything that's forbidden. Like, for example... Uh, Gentile, we're not allowed to be involved in Gentile relationships with Gentiles as far as intimacy is concerned. That's forbidden to us. And and yesterday we discussed all the cosmic stuff about this protecting the nucleus of the prophetic experience because of the prophecies at Sinai. So once you're a nation of prophets, like you have at that point on, the bloodline has to stay a certain pedigree of of people who have prophecy in their blood. You have to have prophecy in your blood to marry a Jew. So you have prophecy in your blood. You're a Jewess. You have prophecy in there. So you're only allowed to marry someone with prophecy. And now they may not have prophecy, but it's in their genetic buildup. We have a collective unconscious, we have a collective subconscious prophecy background, and we have to marry people from that collective subconscious prophecy. Hence the rules of not being Gentiles. But certain things are kryptonite for us. For example, pig is kryptonite for us. Uh, just any milk and meat together is kryptonite for us. Um, being in a car on Shabbos, unless it's an emergency, is kryptonite for us. Certain things are just kryptonite, and relationships can be kryptonite for us. I mean, with, with people, is it just spiritual, or is it physical too? 
uh, marrying Gentiles or, or, or just cohabitating with them? Yeah, I mean, is it spiritual? Is it physical? Like it's both. Okay, so if if someone converts, how does that work then? So according to our sages, that anyone who converts to Judaism, and we're not talking about just to marry Jared Kush, but anyone who anyone who commits to Judaism, converts to Judaism, their soul was at Sinai. Their soul. Um, I don't know if you've been in enough classes, Greg, to know how many levels of soul there are. There's like these myriad levels of soul. The only part of your soul that's hanging out around you is like a micrometer of membrane that your that your neurons report to. It's your consciousness, but your consciousness is thin compared to the soul. Most of your soul is already in the world where it'll be when and when you die. Meaning you're mostly dead. No offense, and only only some thin crop, thin la- outer layer, one little membrane is the part that your neurons talk to. So, so their soul was there. At Sinai, and I know a lot of amazing converts. I mean, you got to be nuts to convert to Judaism. I mean, you have to have had your soul at Sinai. You know, every convert I know who's like the real deal of converts, which is most of them, because I get to be in Israel, and we don't. Israel, you if you're dating somebody and you'd like to marry them, they they'll let you convert to Judaism, but you have to sign you won't marry the person you're dating. Yeah, Israel's strict. When it comes to conversion, yeah, there's no, you know, marrying Kushner here. You you, got to... Now, by the way, so do you think I hold Ivanka's conversion isn't uh, kosher? Do you? The answer is I hold it is kosher. You know why? Why? Because throughout history... Because we need her. She's Queen Esther and Trump is Ahasuerus. Not because we need her, no. What do you think went on in those days? Moses otherwise married a Gentile. Moses married a midnight girl, you know, and converted her to Judaism. You know, Moses married a convert. You know, exactly the way Jared did. You know, (laughs) bottom line. You know, he found Yocheved. Yocheved seemed cool. She liked him, he liked her. Match made in heaven. Yeah, except she wasn't Jewish. So he had to take care of business. And she converted. And not only that, Rivka converted and Leah converted. We're the descendants of converts. They're all converts to Judaism. So, you understand? Like, everyone married that way. It's only uh, once we've got the Torah, it's only once we've got the Torah, meaning towards Sinai, and we had this prophetic experience, national prophecy, like, unheard of unprecedented, never claimed by any other people on earth. Why wouldn't anyone else claim that? You can't get a better claim. You can't, because you, you can't fudge it. You can't, like, there's no way to, there's no way to um, deny national, uh, national revelation, national prophecy. How do you ever deny it? Should I say that better? How do you ever pretend it happened if it didn't? That's what I'm saying. If you have three million people who witness prophecy, I'm sorry. If you have three million people who did not witness prophecy, and now you got 400 years between Sinai and David's city, which was all full Jewish life. I mean, there was full Jewish life going on here. Temple, the offerings, everything. Levites, Cohens, twelve tribes. You know, so you only got 400 years to pull off this little charade. 
We have 400 years to pull off the charade. Well, think about it. Three million people are at Sinai. That's a, that, there were that many people in China at the time. It was a massive population of people who were at the prophecy. So if it didn't happen, how are you ever in those couple hundred years going to convince someone that he's from the Jewish people? You have to go to people and convince them they're Jewish and then create the civilization that we exist. We had a civilization here in a very early time in history with a very low population on the planet. How are you ever going to create a whole civilization of people who all agree they were somewhere they weren't? I mean, maybe I could convince Greg, but I can't because Greg's going to go ask his uncle and his aunt and his grandma and his grandpa and his, you know, and Uncle George and Aunt Ethel, and he's going to be like, did you ever hear of this happening in our family? They're going to be like, did you, like, just fall off the moon? No, that never happened. You understand? Like, how do you fabricate it? How do you fabricate three million people getting a prophetic experience unless it happened? You know, you basically have, you know, there's one way. You'd have to kill everybody, and then, meaning everyone would have to, no, no, let's say no one was alive. No, you'd have to, part of your story would be that everyone died. You'd have to have that in the story. That every single man, woman, and child died from Sinai, and, and then you'd have to come to a fresh group of people and say to them, you have amnesia, <laughs> national amnesia, you just don't remember what just happened at Sinai. And, but you're part of this people, and let me teach you all about the things that you got to do 24 7. 55,000 laws that you now have to do. Have you guys ever thought about this? Who in the world is going to keep 55,000 laws except for someone who had prophecy? Nobody. Why do you think. Why do you think the world religions have as few things as possible to keep. Because when you're making something up, you better make it darn easy. And if you have any difficulty, you're going to have to bring out machetes. In Judaism, with 55,000 laws, no machetes. And the reason why is because we were all there. We all had the prophetic experience. And by the way, let's just say God said, you know what, forget the national prophecy. We're just going to give it to Moses. You know, like other religions have a prophet who does the job. He, he, he's the guy who's in the cave. Let's just have Moses be the guy in the cave, and he comes out. What are you going to say? I mean, what would you say right now if, uh, I don't know, if uh, Ezra walked into this classroom glowing, and all of a sudden all our hair stands up, we're like, whoa, everyone looks over, oh, and, and Ezra's like, I'm a prophet, help! And, and we're all like, whoa! You know, and of course there are, the police are looking for him down there, the, the rabbis are looking for him down here, but he snuck out. And, and, um, you know, the police would want to snub him out. That wouldn't be good for politics. The rabbis would be interested. So, anyway, so we'd say to him, what do we want to know? What did God say? Now, can you imagine if we all sat in here for 55,000 things that we're all supposed to do? You know what we'd all say to him at the end of his long list? By the way, we learned the list by heart of... Uh, 613 in H, we learn it all by heart. Not the 55,000, just the 613. Um, so we'd all say to him, if God wanted us to do that, he shouldn't have told you. Who should he have told? He should have told us. Well, isn't that exactly what the story says? No one in the world is going to keep Torah unless they were there. I mean, you could be the descendants and raised in it, 
but you got to be raised in it. Any of you who were not raised keeping all the t- commandments, I can ev- I can vouch that it's not so easy to take it on. It's a little rough because you're not raised in it. If you're not dipped in it, it's pretty hard to to transfer your life to it. Thank God there's a lot of beauty in the process, and Shabbos meals are gorgeous, and and obviously you get to actually have a marriage that works and it's a community that supports marriage and family. And it's got all the pluses in the world, but the transition's rough. But there had to have been, for there ever to have been a whole community of Israel simultaneously keeping one of the most incredible rocket science detailed tradition to the point of death to be killed for. Think about it. Think about it. If you were born in Europe at any period of the last 2,000 years, and you're looking at your beautiful children who you just carried to term before modern medicine, so you could have died off any of those kids. But, you know, maternal instincts, like I'll have them anyway. Now you have the kids. Now you're looking at your beautiful children, and you know that they'll likely die for being Jewish. Meaning they'll likely be killed for being Jewish. If you love your kids, shouldn't you just simply help them assimilate and make them help them like forget anything about Judaism? I mean, we look Ashkenazi, we look European. Can't we just blend in? And maybe my kids will live a longer life. No, I'm saying if you really did it, did it, you could do it. All you have to do is move to some other country as Gentiles. You're all set. No, they, they would not find out you're Jewish. I would definitely not find out you're Jewish. I mean, don't Jews care about their children? <laughs> don't they care about their children living long lives? And the answer is that generation after generation after generation after generation after generation, generation said that I'd rather have my kids killed for being Jewish than have them live a long life as Gentiles because we're part of a Sinai prophetic people and the world needs us. Even though they want to kill us, they need us. And we ourselves are not willing to surgically reinstall our foreskins just to live a couple more years. Meaning Judaism, if you get what I just said, Judaism is more important than life to a Jew. Does it serve the world better to, to die by your principle instead of having the chance later to help the world? Does it serve what? Does it serve the world better you want to be a life of the nations, to die for a principle instead of assimilating, still have the opportunity to, to help the world. Later. So as far as serving the world, that's, uh, that's an interesting discussion. But, uh, but I don't know if I want to go there right now. The main point I want to make was, was, the, um, was that the parents made this choice. The parents made this choice, every one of them. And I think, I think probably every woman in this room would make the same choice. And I think the men in this room would have a mix of, it would be a mixed bag of, would I let my kids die as Jews if I could have assimilated and had them survive? What do you, why do you think one of the biggest assimilations that the Jews ever went through was right after the Holocaust? Because the Jews who moved to America said, like, part of, part of never again, you know the whole never again thing? Part of never again is, it'll be never again because... We're no longer going to be different than Gentiles. We're going to be like the Gentiles so that they won't kill us. But that's a really insane move because all you have to know is a couple years of history to know that Hitler rose to power during a 55% intermarriage of Germany. 
55% interest LA didn't hit 55% until the 1990s, late 1990s. I'm sorry, 50%. LA didn't get to 50% while Germany was at 55% in 1930. That's the kind of environments that, that's the kind of environment that a Hitler rises in. Because when the Jews try to stray too far, so God makes other plans. Yeah. Keeps us identified. It's called state, yeah, anti-Semitism. Another term for anti-Semitism is station identification. You know, where God just re-identifies us. If we're not willing to identify us, he'll make the, gen- the Gentiles will identify us. But anyway, life is not worth more than our Judaism. That's crazy. But that's why you're Jewish right now. You're only Jewish right now because there are people for generation after generation who all chose Judaism over life. That Judaism was more important than life. And yet, how many Jews do I meet, and it's daily, who have n- who basically have had no problem marrying a Gentile? And how many people sacrificed for them to be able to call themselves a Jew in 2018 and they're willing to put the seed of Abraham into the nations that's, that's, that seed doesn't belong there we're from a prophetic people and our seed has to stay in the prophetic people now This was not the point of my class. The point of our class is the law of economy. And the the law of economy, the law of economy is that if you want to live a happy life, you've got to strip away perceived value and get to what's the core value. What's your core values? You have to have core values, and that's what's valuable. You don't care what the marketing says. You don't care what the hype says. You don't care what the advertisements say. You don't care what the billboards say. You don't care what the neighbors say. You just go with the real value. And then what happens when you go for real value is really cool stuff starts happening in your life. Amazing stuff starts happening. For example, uh, your parents become number one, which is awesome. I mean, you're number one for them, so now you just even things out. They're number one for you, and you're number one for them. Like, that's amazing. Parents like are the ones who care about you the most, so... Let's put them. Let's put them back higher up on the chart. That's that's amazing thing. Another thing is that is that well, there was one more thing I wanted to talk about before we go into all the good stuff that comes, and that is self delusion. Self delusion. That was called right when we delude ourselves. Self self delusion. So human beings. Human beings are are classic self-deluders. We, we have this amazing need to be able to live with ourselves. Like, we need to be able to live with ourselves. And the way we live with ourselves is we create, kind of, we'll always create our philosophy around our current behavior. We create our philosophy around our current behavior. That way, you know, let's say, for example, um, just to go on a simple example is, let's say you're trying to decide between the Toyota Camry Hey, what's up? We got a spot right here, uh, right there. Okay, that spot. Hey, how you doing? Hey. Oh my gosh, look at these fresh faces. 
You guys are beautiful. I'm bring, I'll bring a chair next to his. Just find that there's a... Yeah, Okay, you ready? Here we go. We're talking about a uh, law of economy that you only trade a lesser good for a greater good. You think you'd come to a Torah class to find discuss the economy? So, for example, but right now we're in the part of called self-delusion. Self-delusion is that we always create a philosophy around whatever we currently think. Obviously, that sounds crazy, but let's just say this: say you're deciding between the Mazda. Five and the Toyota Camry, okay, between the Mazda Five and Toyota Camry, and you, you know, you keep seeing billboards on this way and that way, and this, do I get the Mazda, do I get the this, do I get that, you see them on the street and stuff, and you have two ways to get home from work, one takes eight minutes and one takes six minutes, and obviously you take the six minutes, unless you're going to be in a long conversation or something, but you take the six minute wait. It turns out you chose the Toyota Camry. Now, there is a giant billboard on the six-minute drive for the Mazda 5. Which way are you going home? Six-minute way or the eight-minute way? You'll come up with all... You'll take the eight-minute way, and, and your best friend will be in the car going, why are you going this way? And you'll be like, you know, you'll have already come up with reasons why. You're definitely not going to mention the Mazda billboard. You're going to have built up a philosophy about the eight-minute way. But you'll probably just say to your friend, like, it's just more time together. You know, just we'll have a little more time together. Two minutes extra. And they'll be like, oh, that's nice. But meanwhile, that's what's going on. This is what's happening in your life all the time. How many people have I met in dead-end relationships that have this whole world built up, whole philosophy built up around it because they've invested too much to pull out. And they care too much about the other person, even though it's wrong and it's a dead end. They care too much about the other person to hurt them. And so what they'll do is they'll create a whole narrative and a whole scenario around what's not working and, and will not work and will crash and burn much bigger later than now. And really the right thing to do Greg, I got your new spot. The, the, the right thing to do is to simply... The right thing to do is to simply cut it off early. Even though, you know, it's, what's called, it's called in business, cut your losses. And how many people's businesses failed? Because they just kept creating philosophies around business. But business is not philosophy. You want to make money in business, keep the philosophy out. And keep clear on the numbers. And... And don't create illusions around what you've gotten yourself emotionally involved with. I once had a guy in this class who <laughs> was uh, who had announced to the whole class that he was engaged to a particular girl, and it was uh, quite obvious to me that this was a no-go. And uh, it was uh, kind of one of those, as we spoke about earlier, a kryptonic relationship. Yeah, and. Uh, Lush and kryptonite, so <laughs> this was not going to be good for Superman. Anyway, what I did was I asked him, what I did was I asked him, you know, tell me, what is it, what is it that you love about? 
what is it that you love about this girl? So he gives me this long list of things. So I quick on my toes, I had a pen. So I just start writing like, dong, 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 dong. And then I said to the class, should he marry her? And the whole class said, yes, it's true love. I mean, it was great, nine items on the list. How many people can name nine items like that? Boom, 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 boom. He nailed it. And so, and so the whole class like, yes. And I looked at the class and I said, no. And they're like, why? <laughs> and then I took a red pen. Um, I'm just reminding everyone, there's a, there's a family that lost themselves financially really bad. And this Thursday class, every Thursday, pays for their Shabbos meal. So uh, um, the stuff that folds is a le- little easier to buy chicken with. But if you only have change, that's wonderful as well. Okay? Um, you want to start a cup around, please? Um, so, listen. So guess what I did? I took a red pen. I, that was my thumbs up. He always puts his face in the window and I go... Otherwise, he keeps his face in the window. It's very uncomfortable. Now, <laughs> it's like stalker. Um, I take a red pen and I write the word me. I write the word me before and after all nine items. This guy fell into my trap so bad. And so did the rest of the class. I wrote the word me before each one. She makes me feel good about myself. She makes me feel smart. She cooks for me. She cleans for me. I just put, you know, everything, I just word them in me. And then I turned to the class and I said, who does he love? And the whole class says, himself. (laughs) (laughs) And then I said, wrong. (laughs) And they were like, wrong again. How are we wrong again? He hates himself. He's got a 50-inch wound that needs immediate emergency care. And he's trying to marry a butterfly band-aid that's supposed to somehow hold it together. Because you don't get serious in any relationship until you yourself are okay. Relationships aren't hospitals. Until you're well, keep your hug your siblings or something. Uh, find somebody else to hug. Find some other security blanket. Find another band-aid. But don't get some human being wrapped up in your thing. That somehow they are perfectly sticky to you know, two edges of a wound that they are not going to be healing. They're not going to be healing that wound. And you'll notice in general that that generally wounded people find each other pretty well. (laughs) Someone was telling me about a couple the other day and I was like, wow, that's terrible. How does she survive? And the person said, well, she's kind of like that too. And I'm like, oh man. What's called in Hebrew min matzat minon. One type finds its, its other type. Thanks, by the way, for pitching in. Rebbe, we need I'm part of that battery. too. What? Need oh, anyone have a portable ba- battery? Portable battery, portable battery. Uh, what am I giving? Give it to me. Uh, 
corner. Um, and we got a portable battery. You got one, Melanie? Yeah, I do. Oh, yeah? It's a portable battery race. Thank you so much. Whose battery did we kill? Yours? Thank you so much for letting us kill your battery. Sorry. How long ago did it die? I hope oh, you didn't notice ago. on my phone. You <laughs> tell me. I didn't want to interrupt. <laughs> Look at this thing. Whoa. Hurry. She won already. Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. This, That's crazy. This one's gorgeous. <laughs> this is like purse or backpack only. 94. Oh wow. That one's more for laptops. I think you slide it next to your laptop. Yeah. So what happens is we delude ourselves. We create whole philosophies around the stuff we're into, as opposed to, oh, by the way, when I left the room that day, I was, it was a big crowd leaving, so I was kind of trying to hide behind them because I didn't want to talk to this guy after what I had done to him. So I was just kind of hiding amongst the crowd. And, but he was like seven foot five, so he went like, <laughs> just kidding. He said, he, he came up to me, he wasn't seven foot five. He says to me, Rabbi, can we speak? And so I was like, uh, yeah. And anyway, we did meet later that afternoon at 4 o'clock. And, uh, and lo and behold, he tells me, you got me. And he, I saw him a year and a half later. It sent him on this whole tailspin. But the tailspin suddenly, like, righted itself and flew way up. This was a completely secular guy. You know, he was married. The girl's name was, like, Christina Cross. There was like, there was no, his name was like, you know, Dennis, you know, Smith or something. Like, this was not, a, not a very observant Jewish man. But I, a year and a half later, I'm at a Shabbos in, I'm, tell, I'm kidding you not, I was at a Shabbos in Connecticut at a hotel with like 600 participants. And, and some guy walks up to me with like a bit of a beard like yours, before beards were in. He's got the cosmic dental floss. You know, and a kippa, and he's so excited to see me, and I have no idea who this is, oh and I'm just like, yeah, good to see you too. You know that that like, I know you, of course. Anyway, he saw you. I had no idea who he was, and uh, and he told me he was the guy, oh my and told me this amazing odyssey of how his life just like, just kind of went down the tubes after we met. But thank God, he's doing great. He came to learn here. For, he was a, he was a, turns out he was a physics, PhD physics guy. Yeah, and he took six months off university as a grad student in, in a physics department, PhD. He took six months off and studied in Jerusalem. Very impressive. Very impressive. Yeah. But I don't know the rest of the story. Hopefully he lived happily ever after. Anyway, um, we've spoken about a million things today, but the, the main point for us is to stop trying to perceive the greatest good and create a criteria for what is really the greatest good in your life. Get a criteria that's not a subjective criteria. It's not a criteria that has you creating philosophies around it, but like a true criteria, a timeless criteria, a criteria that would last forever, that would work for your children, that would work for your grandchildren. Not just some random criteria that, you know, of how 
I'm gonna, you know what? I'm gonna end this class with just a quick story. There was once a king going through the forest, and I apologize if Rabbi Berger told the story too because he likes to tell it, but I don't know if you've heard him tell it. There was once a king going through a forest, and he was traveling with his soldiers. They were training, and they they find arrows going into trees that had you know bullseyes, and the meaning targets. And every arrow that they find is exactly in the t- in the bullseye, but exactly by the millimeter, one after the other, after the other, after the other, and and so the king says, "Men, spread throughout the forest. Find me this archer." And so the men spread out. All the soldiers go around and they find the archer, and they bring the archer by his shirt collar to the king, and you bring him to the king, and the king says to him, "What's your secret?" You're the greatest archer I've ever seen. Bullseye in every tree. And the archer says, it's very simple. I pull back my arrow. I release it at the tree. And then I take my paintbrush and I paint a target around it. <laughs> <laughs> How many of us have been living our lives like that? Though? You know, shooting lots of arrows all over the place and yeah eventually it hits something so maybe I'll paint a target around it you see the word for Torah always tells you meaning Hebrew always tells you the principle the true principle the, the eternal criteria so it always tells you what's up so the word for motivation because the only way you'll ever make it in life no offense is by being motivated <laughs> That was a miss, by the way. It's got to go to my grave. I have a graveyard up there. It's not easy between this little ceiling thing and that bookshelf, even though it looks easy from your seat. So, um, what was I doing? Uh, motivation. The only way you're ever going to make it in your life is you've got to be motivated. And the word for motivation in Hebrew is from the word ras. It means to run. Yeah? Someone who runs is runs. Like, tomorrow's the marathon. It's good we're talking about it. Watch out for traffic tomorrow, because Jerusalem's going to be basically closed. So the word to run is rats, yeah? And it's the root. It's a two-letter root. It comes from the word to want, or the word is really desire, which is the word rotse, but it's the same root. The root is uh, is basically rats. Okay? I just put down the lines, the above and the hey. How do you get motivated? you got to know what you want. you got to know what you want. Now, what's the opposite of running? Probably you'd think standing, but really the ultimate opposite is what you're doing right now is sitting. Sitting's the total opposite. Standing's also kind of the opposite, but sitting's like you're really not running anywhere, you're sitting. And guess what the word is for institutions of Torah where young people study before they start shooting arrows? You know what it's called? Yeshiva, to sit. You sit. And we even use the word sit in English. We'll say, like, for example, um, you're, you're, how long you been sitting? There's a guy, a yeshiva guy in the back. So, how long have you been sitting? <laughs> he's probably wondering when he's going to start running. But, um, but anyway, it's called sitting. But you know what I'm talking about. They'll say, you know, for example, when I came here, I sat for eight years. I sat eight years. And I'm coming from six to eight hours a day of surfing. You know, just getting high, drinking beer, and surfing internationally. On my father's dime, and and I and next thing and mountain biking, if there were no waves, and 
But that's all I did for six for twelve years straight. And next thing I know, I find myself here, and I've got my hair looked a lot like hers, um, but more like these. I actually, believe it or not, I actually have Italian curls, so I actually have these long curls. So when I got here, I had like a hundred of these coming down my back, like exactly like this coming down my back. So you should have seen what I look like when I got here, and it was all blonde because I'm in the sun all day. And anyway. Long story short is then I sat for eight years straight. Now the only reason I really sat that many years was because I married a woman who would not who would not accept anything less. So I sat three years straight. Three years straight, I sat here at Asia Torah, and then after I got married, my wife made sure I slept, sat another another five. And that's why I'm here. That's why I'm the one teaching. You guys are the one sitting. But but really, I'm just like you. I'm where have I gotten in Torah? Torah's the seat, you know. If you're racing Mike Phelps, is that the Olympic swimmer who smokes weed? If you're racing, if you're racing Mike Phelps, but you're both being dropped in the Atlantic Ocean, no one's going to win. You're both going to die because that's Torah. Torah is we're all in this together. There's no way to ever really know it. And anyway, but I'd, rather than you guys shooting a bunch of arrows and painting targets around it, I'd rather see you sit a little and learn and get the criteria down so that later you can choose the best good and really live in the law of economy because you only choose a greater good. And you mean you only trade a trade, a lesser good to get a greater good, but you've got to figure out what the good is. And the only way to do that is having an endless eternal criteria. And that requires sitting to get the criteria down so that you don't wind up fooling yourself and living in self-deluding philosophies, but rather you're living a great life based on true principles that will last forever, not only for you, but your kids, your grandkids, great-grandkids, forever. Amen. Amen. Good Shabbos. For those of you who want to break, you have a couple minute break. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.